Let me invite your attention to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 11. Matthew 6 and verse 11. As you're turning there, this is going to be a profoundly helpful passage for us today and really for the next number of months. I am aware that it is profoundly important for me as a pastor to announce a vision for our church. And I will tell you that will come at least by the fall. I've got some other groundwork to do and we have some other groundwork to do, but it will at least come by then if not before then. But I I do want to let you know, we will need to pray this uh, text here in verse number 11. In fact, the whole passage. um, And we'll need to pray so fervently and frequently. Because I I anticipate that the kind of vision that the Lord will direct us to reach and pursue will be the kind that when announced, we will need some smelling salts and oxygen tanks because half of us will pass out uh, when it's announced. Anytime God begins to lead a congregation and a people together in unity, it usually scares the daylights out of everyone. God does not do things in a small way. His Son's name is huge and it's large and it's majestic. And the vision He gives to a church has got to be according to that greatness. And God loves everyone in the region and really wants to get the gospel of salvation to them all. He wants them all to follow Jesus in baptism in the name of the triune God and wants everyone to become obedient to the Word of God. And so those are some of the terms and some of the thinking that we will use by the fall to describe the vision of Beach Haven Baptist Church. And it will be more than just mere statement. We'll have to implement this and apply it to every facet of the church. Every ministry, every member, everything... Uh, that uh, is involved in Beach Haven Baptist Church. And so uh, the truth is, is that if we come to the point where our knees are knocking and our teeth are chattering, we're probably in the will of God. Anything less than that is suspect. But that's how God does things. And so whenever something is accomplished, you, you know what happens. Uh, The community and those who look and those of us who participate are never tempted to give credit to any breathing human being or any human invention. Whenever God accomplishes something, we, we, we are moved and stimulated only to give glory to God. If something can be explained by human invention or human ingenuity or human participation, it probably is not from heaven, but it probably would satisfy a lot of folks. In fact, that kind of satisfaction and self-affirmation is one of the largest enemies of Christian ministry. And so, as we look here at this text, I find great comfort that is found here because Jesus is teaching His disciples to pray for their daily needs. Now, this is profoundly important because they have just each left their small businesses. They've given up their income, and most of them have families, most likely. And they are soon to embark upon a traveling ministry around the globe, anywhere there are human beings breathing, to preach the gospel without any means of financial support. In other words, after the resurrection, they're going to be unemployed riffraff. They will not have any visible means of financial support. They are itinerant evangelists throughout the world. And they live by faith, and they're going to have to live off the largesse of others. And what they receive as far as their salary is concerned is going to be 
dependent upon whether or not people obey God in giving. And so all of their salary comes from the voluntary gifts of other people. Now, do you understand why this prayer then is so important to them? And frankly, it's going to be important to us. Now, I'm not encouraging you, any of you, to give up your job. Matter of fact, keep it. (laughs) We're going to need it around here. But you understand how if you do not have a visible, regular, reliable means of financial support, you need this kind of prayer in verse number 11. And so Jesus sends them on a kingdom mission telling them you can trust God for your needs when you ask Him for them. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, He simply said, Give us this day our daily bread. And the thing I want to encourage you with is this. As you are obedient to the mission of Jesus Christ in this world, you can trust God to meet your needs as you pursue that mission. Well, why is it that I should trust then this God, this Father who claims to want to be the Father of the whole world? Why should I trust Him for my needs? Well, there are several reasons that I think surface from the text. You can trust this Father for your needs because of His history. His history. Um, You can trust him because of his history with the world. I don't know if you're aware or not, but throughout the centuries, the last number of centuries, the resources of the world and the wealth and health of the world have been concentrated in the traditional Christian lands like the United States and Europe. Outside the traditional Christian lands has been want and lack and poverty, starvation, deterioration, and declining health. The kind of progress in health and needs meeting and the systems that bring about the meeting of needs have been concentrated in Europe and the United States. Now we're finding that as the Christian faith accelerates at a rapid pace south of the equator in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, we find things changing there and improving greatly. In fact, the story of that has just been absolutely stunning. It's really neat what's happening there, spiritually, theologically, and physically economically and otherwise. But traditionally, the health and the wealth and the resources of the world have been concentrated in Christian lands. Christians, those who name the name of Christ, own the vast majority of the resources in the world. And so most of the giving and most of the charity comes from the West. It is in the lands where false religion predominates where you find an awful lot of starvation where you find a lack of daily bread. Now, the issue is profoundly complex, but, and I'm sorry to simplify it, but I, I need to say to you, you've got places where people actually worship what they are supposed to be eating. Hinduism does that. They will not eat cattle because they're afraid they may be eating a relative. They will not extinguish and exterminate rats, for that may be a human being that's been reincarnated because of bad karma. By the way, may may I announce to you a pet peeve, and you're not going to offend me terribly if you use this, but Christians don't use the word karma except to challenge it. There's no such thing as bad karma. We don't have bad karma. We reap what we sow. And that's not karma. Karma is a whole philosophical, theological construct. We, We don't use that, okay? But we do say you reap what you sow. Well, that is why they do not eat the animals that they're supposed to be eating. Well, because Hindus do not do that, then what is remaining eats up 15 to 20 percent of the remaining food supply. So they do not eat what they're supposed to eat, but what they're supposed to eat eats what it remains because of false religion. 
It is only the Christian faith that can produce a system and a thought and concept about people in the world and food and systems so that they have enough to eat. And that is what is taking place in our world. So that is to say, one of the best things we could do to stamp out starvation and malnourishment is to win people to Jesus and lead them to turn away from idols and turn to the living God through Christ. That is God's history with the world. It's also His history with giving. The Catalog of Philanthropy has been quoted the last 10 years in some major newspaper articles and research studies. And here's what they found. Not only in terms of the world, but the United States, the patterns of giving in the United States are really remarkable. In fact, the Catalog of Philanthropy reports that the poorest states in the United States are generally in the South, and this is where uh, the biblical faith predominates. It's in those places in the nation where you find great other places in the nation, like the West and Northwest, where you find great wealth, but the faith is rescinded. But the places where people are the most generous is where you find the largest number of Bible-believing Christians, which happens to be the poor states. As a percentage of income, poor Christians give a larger percentage of their income than wealthy non-Christians in the United States. And as an example, Mississippi is about number 50. It goes up and down occasionally, but it doesn't usually get above 48 or 49 It's often number 50 in the nation in economics and wealth. It's about the poorest state in the nation, but number one in faith and number one in giving throughout the nation. And the same is true in those states in the South where the faith predominates. But Connecticut is number 44 in giving, but the wealthiest state in the nation, generally speaking. Give or take a position or two. Ladies and gentlemen, when someone comes to Jesus Christ, he or she can't help to become like Jesus. Sanctification and growth is irresistible. And you become like Jesus. That's the Father's plan, is to shape believers into the image of Christ. So that's his history with the world and his history with giving, but it's also his history with systems. A couple of authors, Saul Hill and Haskins, wrote in a Washington Times piece a number of years ago, that in the United States, if you want to avoid poverty, there are three important behaviors. Number one, graduate from high school. Number two, work full-time. And number three, get married before you have children. And the likelihood that you'll be poor drops from 12% down to 2%, and the likelihood that you will be in the middle class rises from 56% to 74%. I read that and I thought, is that all it takes? Well, yes. Now, let me repeat those three things. Finish high school at the very least. Work full-time at anything. And then third, get married before you have children. Do you understand what's happened in our nation? We have got the kind of nation of opportunity. In other words, if you meet just three simple, three simple lifestyle choices, it is likely that you will be in the middle class and be able to take care of your needs and the needs of your family. Beloved, that is the kind of system that God has given to us, not simply because of us, but our Christian ancestors built a mighty nation to where it is very difficult, and I'm convinced of this, even because of personal history, it is very difficult to fail in this nation. You have to work hard to do it. 
This is what God does when He gets hold of a people. He does something to them financially and otherwise. So I've got to say, the evidence is in. Whether it's global evidence, uh, whether it's world history, individual history, or the history of giving, the truth is, is that God gives us daily bread. He takes care of us. Trust Him for that because of His history. But that's not all. Trust the Father for your needs because not only of His history, but His head. His sensible head. He is a wise head. And He said, give us this day our daily bread. Now, the disciples probably thought of Israel. The disciples often did. And many of the Jews in the first century would start thinking of Old Testament stories whenever Jesus would preach and teach and the apostles would preach and teach. In the wilderness, after their release from Egypt, they complained to Moses about not having enough bread and enough food. So God promised quail and manna. And the Septuagint, the word bread here used in the Greek New Testament, is the same word for manna. And so God told them, I'm going to provide for you manna, but I'm going to do it a day at a time. Collect only what you need for the day. Do not collect anymore or it will spoil. On the day before the Sabbath, collect twice as much. And whereas if you collect too much the previous days, it will spoil. It won't spoil then. Because I don't want you collecting on the Sabbath. And that's precisely what they did. And friends, for 40 years they had manna. God fed them with living bread from heaven. Well, Jesus comes along in John 6 and says, Now nah, I'm that manna. So he fed, now watch this, this nomadic people, two million strong with bread. Folks, that's half the metro, metropolitan area of Atlanta. How many goods does it take to feed that hungry bunch over there? And God did it on a daily basis for 40 years. And then once they developed an agricultural system in the promised land, it went away. You see, as nomads, they couldn't have an agriculture. They could not have those systems. They traveled from place to place. And so God fed them on a daily basis. And Jesus is saying here, I want you, like them, to ask God for daily manna. Ask them for daily manna. This is how God gave, and He gives wisely. Now I want you to do something for a minute. I want you to take a mental journey for just a moment and I want you to walk on to your, pa- your pantry or to your cabinet where your canned goods are and think about everything that is in your pantry. Now I want you to walk to your refrigerator and I want you to open it up and I want you to look inside. Take a look. Now, open the freezer, or open the freezer, and look inside there. And if you have a refrigerator freezer in the garage, walk out there and look at that too. (laughs) Now, let's just imagine that every one of those are empty right now. Okay, move to your bank account. I want to ask you over the next day or two, Over the next day or two, are any of you going hungry? How many of you have daily bread and more? By taking that mental journey, what you have just done is that you have proven the Father gives daily bread and He gives more. 
In fact, if someone were hungry today or someone needed lunch plans after church, you could bring them home. This is how the Father gives. Now, I want you to do something else. I want you to take the dollar value of everything you brought to church today and tally it up. Let's start with your shoes. What's the value? Tally it up real quickly in your head. What are the value of your shoes? And what about your britches, skirt, dress, your shirt, coat and tie for some of you? Now tally that up. Now what about your dental work? And what about your contacts or eyeglasses? Do you have any jewelry on? Okay, add that. Is there anything else? Pacemaker? (laughs) Name tag? Ah, hair color? Yeah, your Bible, Bible cover, add that. Now take any cash that you have in your pocket. Add to it what remains on the balance of your credit card, your credit limit. If you have on, and I'm not going to ask you to tally your vehicle into that, just what you have inside the worship center today. If you have on you and with you right now more than $750 in value, you have more on you right now than the annual income of half the people in the world. Half the people in the world have got to live on less than what you have on you right now. Now, I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I hope to make you feel grateful. God gives daily bread. Now, you, you may say, well, wait a minute, I, I don't have everything I, everything I want. The Lord didn't promise your wants. In fact, I, I really think that what God often does is that He knows us and He gives us precisely what we can handle. Some of us have more because He can trust us with it to take care of needs and to fund the World Christian Mission. Some of us may not have as much as others because we'd ruin ourselves if we did. Have you ever heard of Powerball winners and how they wreck their lives and families and marriages with a few million dollars? They can't be trusted with themselves and with unbridled freedom. And so having what you need is one thing. Having what you want is entirely different, and God didn't promise that. God is wise in how He distributes resources and how He takes care of us. In other words, God does not always meet our need the way that we anticipate. But He always does it according to wisdom. He knows what we need and how we need it. It reminds me of a deacon in a church where I served as interim pastor many years ago. He uh, was struggling with a liver ailment of some sort, the the name of which I, I have long forgotten. But it was making him weak and fatigued, and he was uh, getting exhausted in the afternoon. He had a small business. He needed to run that. He was running out of energy. His work performance was suffering. And he uh, got to the point where his um, doctor put him on a transplant list. Bill was going to have to have a liver transplant. The problem was is that when his doctor put him on the transplant list, 
His case was such that it was less critical than 23 other cases, so he was number 24. We heard that and it broke our hearts because we knew with the way transplants are and the speed or the slowness of them, there was just no way he was going to get a transplant list before he had to sell his business and give everything up. So he called on us to gather around him and pray for him. So the deacons and I met in a Sunday school room one Tuesday night. and We laid hands on Bill and we pleaded with God to, to heal him. Well, Bill came back the next week with devastating news. He said, now I've got a malignant cancerous tumor in my liver. And we thought, well, we just prayed for him and he gets cancer. He came back the following week and said, because I have this tumor in my liver, this cancer in my liver, I've gone from number 24 to number 2 on the transplant list. In two weeks, he had a liver transplant. His body accepted it. He regained his strength. Beloved, if you had asked me to heal Bill of his liver ailment, I would have thought, of course, of transplant, medication, some other kind of therapy. I would have never thought to give him cancer. God healed that man by giving him cancer. Let me say something to you about cancer and everything else. There is nothing that intimidates God. In the hands of God, a cancer can become a therapy and a medicine. In the hands of Almighty God. God may not provide the way that you anticipate. In fact, when God does, He may surprise you and stun everyone else. But God has a way of doing things that only sometimes He understands. God's ways are mysterious, His wonders to perform. Trust His history. Trust His head. But then I want to ask you to trust His heart as well. One lady sent out Christmas cards in a hurry. She didn't take time to read the greeting on the inside until a few days after they went out and they arrived. She sent 50 of them, not knowing that the card said, this card is just to say a little gift is on the way. Well, needless to say, she couldn't come through with the gift. She had to disappoint the recipient. Do you know, no one could ever accuse God of doing that. He comes through. Trust His heart. His heart is set on this. He has a zeal and a passion and an eagerness to take care of needs whenever you are on His mission and obey it and give yourself to it. That's why Jesus said that when we say, give us this day our daily bread, we are praying in verse 9 to our Father. To our Father. And Jesus would elaborate that on that in the next chapter when He said, ask, it shall be given to you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, the door shall be opened to you. How many are there among you that if He has a son that asks him to bre for bread, will give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who's in heaven? God is not in the business of giving stones when we ask for bread or snakes when we ask for fish. He doesn't do that. We don't do that. Compared to Him, we are profoundly and wickedly evil. And His goodness and His generosity, His kindness... And the perfection of His fatherhood rises high above anything that we could ever perform ourselves for our own 
children. Trust the Father because of His heart. When you come before the Father, you are coming to a God who has put His name and His Son's name behind providing for your needs. He is into this. He's committed to this. He is all in. He is not hesitant. He does not reserve. He does not delay. He takes care of needs whenever they need to be taken care of. R.G. Lee wrote in his book, The Bible and Prayer, this, Some look upon prayer as argument or debate with God. And some seem to think that answer to prayer comes when men out-argue God. Some seem to think that prayer is overcoming God's willingness. And then he quotes another preacher who says, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of His willingness. He has unbounded goodness and unbounded generosity. So much so that Jesus startled the first century world by saying, You can call Him our Father. Now Paul would elaborate on this a little bit later in Romans 8.32 where he said of God, He who did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? Oh, it's a marvelous argument there. Paul uses a greater than, lesser than line of reasoning. He says, if God did the greater for those who are lesser, how much more will He do the lesser for those who are greater? If I could bench press 250 pounds in my dreams, uh, then I certainly I can bench press 125. If God is willing to crucify and execute His only Son for sinners, what do you think He'll do for His children? That's what God does with His children. Hey, and that's the good news for you today. God executed His Son at Calvary's cross because of the death sentence against us. We can be free from the condemnation of His law and His just demands against us by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's what God does with sinners. That's how He approaches them with handfuls of His Son's mercy and grace purchased at the expense of the life of His Son. And so at the end of our service, we're going to give you the opportunity to repent and place faith in Jesus, urging you to trust His heart. But that's not all. You can trust the Father with your needs because of His hand. He said, give us this day our daily bread. Give. Give is a very simple word. God does not need to go through elaborate, difficult, frustrating processes to deliver our needs. He, he may do that, but He doesn't have to. As the sovereign Lord of all, He can arrange creation to give. And then He said, give us this day our daily bread. Us. Think about all of those included in the word us. Those in their first job waiting for their first paycheck and those that are retired. Us. Those who have a long, stellar work history and those who are struggling. Us. Those who have met financial reversal and disappointment and those who've never known a day of it. Us. Those of us that are serving in the bush, someplace in East Africa and those who may be in a financial district doing very well. Us. 
Give us this day our daily bread. And there is no hint here that God finds any human circumstance so difficult He cannot meet the need. Whether it's Elijah in a widow's home, or Jesus who did not have a place to lay His head, God the Father is capable of meeting needs with His outstretched arm and His hand. Thoroughly capable, He can do it. In fact, God arranged creation for the salvation of the world. That cross upon which Jesus died came from a tree, which came from a tree, which came from a tree that God planted in the Garden of Eden. The crown of thorns that graced His head and punctured and pierced His brow came from a bush that came from a bush that came from a bush that God planted in the Garden of Eden. Those who mocked His name and those who crucified Him came from parents who came from parents who originally came from Adam and Eve. Even in creation, God the Father was thinking of saving sinners and providing for their salvation even at the expense of His only Son. I read the other day of a Mexican fisherman who was out at sea for 16 months, landed on the Marshall Islands out in the Pacific, somehow missed the route down to a South American country and found himself far west, thousands of miles from home. He lived by capturing turtles in the sea, drinking rainwater, and just surviving. When he arrived, he was living, he was emaciated, his blood pressure was deflated a little, but they fed him and they helped him recover rather quickly. It's a wild story. There are probably some details we've yet to find out. But friend, you've got to know, the truth is, is that every one of us are emaciated and out to sea and in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our spiritual condition before God is much like that Mexican fisherman who's emaciated near to deterioration and death. That's what the Bible teaches. But thank God the Father from heaven has given us the bread from heaven, which Jesus said is me. I am the bread come down from heaven. That's what I am. Now, I have uh, discovered through the years in uh, evangelism that most people, have a grotesquely exaggerated view of their virtue and their righteousness. 900 times out of 1,000, when I've asked the question, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and He was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to Him? And the vast majority, 900 out of 1,000, including church members, would say, well, I've been good, I treat my neighbor well, I pray, or some other human work or some other human virtue. May I say to you, if you have any hope of meeting God in grace when you do stand before Him and gaining entrance into His eternal home, you're going to have to give up on that foolishness. I'm not here to offend you or break your heart or, or, or embarrass you, but what I've got to say to you is, dear friend, the Bible has an entirely different witness. We are emaciated and near death, and the only thing that keeps us alive is the mere pleasure of God. 
God wants us to live another moment. Therefore, we do, and that's it. The only hope we have is the grace of God because Christ paid, and that's available, because Christ paid for our death sentence at the cross, and God was so pleased with him, he raised him from the dead. And now, in terms of bread, the Father is giving it away for free because we can't have it any other way. We certainly can't earn it. There's simply no way. And so Jesus went so far as to say in John 6, if you're going to have eternal life, you've got to eat my flesh. He's not encouraging cannibalism. Don't misunderstand him. What he's saying is, is that you've got to come to me and receive me just like your body receives bread and take him into that extent. Now let me ask you something. Have any of you eaten any bread today? I had zucchini bread today for breakfast. Someone brought it by the house. And I have to admit, I I just simply tore into it. I opened it day before yesterday, and I'm sure I have eaten half the loaf. Don't tell my wife, but I think I've eaten half the loaf. And I enjoyed every minute of it. But what I did not do is that I did not have it tested for toxins and poisons. Someone I do not know delivered it to the home. I may know them now. I looked over the name and tore into the bread. I didn't pay any attention to that. I apologize. (laughs) But you did write a thank you note, didn't you? Good. Okay. All right. But Jesus is saying to you, I want you to receive me with as much trust as you receive your food. Some of you stopped by a fast food restaurant and sped your way through the drive-thru where a stranger prepared your biscuit and delivered it to you. If you can trust a stranger with things that you ingest for your health and satisfaction, isn't it time to treat Jesus with as much trust? You see. And that's what Christ is calling for you to do. Trust Him enough to accept His evaluation of you, that you are emaciated, and that the sentence of death is upon you. Trust Him enough that His cross is sufficient and pleases His Father enough to cancel your sin. Enough to where you believe and trust that He is Lord because He's risen from the dead. Trust Him enough to invite Him into your life as Master, Lord, God, and Savior of all. And you can do that now because the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, we want to pray today that friends would do that and fling open wide the door of their hearts and say yes to Jesus. Oh God, would you do a neat work in hearts and lives. Help them to receive the living bread today. I pray the hunger for freedom from guilt and from the demands and sentence of heaven's court would be met today in living bread. I pray, oh God, that no one would be tempted here today to pursue a poor diet of the heart and the soul. Instead, let them pursue the pure bread from heaven.
Help them to repent from all poor diets of the soul and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in Him alone. Now, as you keep talking to God, if you'll call on Him in humility, He promises to save. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And as we sing, staff will be here in the front. And I want to ask you to step out from where you are. There's no magic to this. We're just giving you the spiritual help that you need. Step out from where you are and meet a staff member here. And simply tell them, I need the living bread. I need Christ. And why don't you come? If you're humble, if you're willing to turn from all the poor diets you've been pursuing, of the world, the flesh, the devil, and if you are willing to trust Christ and Christ alone, we want you to come. Some of you have already done that. And you need to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. It's time. You come. We'll be glad to help you with that as well. God has put on some of your hearts a great pulsating throb to preach His Word. Here or internationally, we want to ask you to come as well. He may be calling you to ministry or missionary service. Why don't you come? God may have already saved you. You may be a member here, but you've drifted from Him. He wants you to come. Would you do that? I want to ask you right now to quietly stand. I'm going to finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Quietly stand with me, please, and then we'll come. Father, would you do a neat work in hearts and lives today and magnify Jesus' name above all. For his sake we pray. Amen.